Welcome to another episode of the Relax Just Love podcast, vegan edition. I got the pleasure to be sitting with Jessica Scott Reed. She is a journalist for animals, not an animal journalist. That's right. <laughs> She's a podcaster and a vegan cook. How are you doing on this beautiful evening, Jessica? Doing lovely, doing lovely. It's the end of a long weekend here in Winnipeg, so it's uh, feeling very relaxed, which seems appropriate for this podcast. Oh, that's true. You guys had a day off today. Yes, yes. I'm fitting you in on a non-work day. <laughs> oh, are we ever so lucky. <laughs> so how hard is it to, dr to write uh, columns dressed as an animal? Is it very, is it? <laughs> the keyboard is tough. The pause on the keyboard make it very difficult. Depends which animal I am doing that day. <laughs> yeah, I because uh, when I read that, that's exactly what I imagined. And a journal, an animal journalist, and typing on my yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Pause. Yeah. So what do you do exactly? What does that entail? Yeah. So I'm a I'm a journalist. I write for uh, free. I'm a freelancer first of all, so I don't write. For anyone, I write for the animals, um, but I do my um, work frequently appears in the Globe and Mail, and the Toronto Star, Winnipeg Free Press here in Canada. Um, I also work for Sentient Media in the U.S. Um, and some other publications, trying to get into you know vegan topics, into say like Wine Enthusiast magazine and other cultural things that aren't necessarily um, you know vegan oriented. But I'm going to try and get it in there. So yeah, I uh, I'm I'm writing about animals full time, which is a dream come true. This is what you do a hundred percent of your time. Well, not a hundred percent, but that's what pays the bills. Yeah, that's my whole career. I, I set out, I've been doing this about five years. I set out just before that I was a, I was a writer doing yeah. all kinds of lifestyle stuff. And I said, you know, I really just want to write about animals and the planet and food. And at that time I was becoming closer to becoming vegan too. And yeah, who would have thought that I actually could? And I think I'm pretty much the only journalist in Canada that writes exclusively about these topics. Yeah, because I was going to say it's a, it's, I can see the curve going there. I can see that there's more and more, um, there's more and more people getting involved. But even for, I run quite a few podcasts, like I have about four different types. And I, I done research on vegan podcasts. There's not a lot of them. Like it's absolutely, absolutely small. I'm very surprised that it's not more popular. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the audience just has to grow a bit more. The one that I do, it's called Pawn Order. It's yeah. an animal law podcast. I didn't name it. I came in late. So it's it's produced by Animal Justice, which is Canada's uh, animal law um, uh, advocates. And yeah. so they've been doing it for a few years. And then they had me come on. And every time I, I forget how funny that sounds, because every time I tell people, oh, yeah, my, my podcast, Pawn Order, and people go, what? Pawn Order? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, we have to laugh about that for a second, because it's funny. <laughs> Again, I imagine you typing your article with your pause, pause, in, order. <laughs> pause in order. It's yeah. a good idea, though. I do like yeah. the name. It's pretty catchy. Very clever. Yeah. So what do you guys what do you guys uh, speak about on pause in order? Obviously animals, but. Yeah, so it's mainly um, animal law focused because uh, animal justice is, um, you know, that's their their main thing. Uh, they're lawyers. So my uh, co-host, Camille Labchuk, she's the executive director. She's an animal rights lawyer. Uh, and then our other co-host, uh, Peter, he's at the University of Alberta. He's also a lawyer. And then I come in more to more with the cultural stuff. Um, you know, as a journalist, we talk a lot about animal stories, making headlines in Canada and around the world and sort of discuss animal issues in the media. So it's, it's a good mix of law and culture. 
So what's the what's the goal? What's your what do you want to accomplish with that podcast? I think it's an education. A lot of people aren't always up on all of these issues. Not everybody can read every single headline about, you know, animals in, you know, Australia and Canada and Asia. And uh, we kind of put it all together. And then we have a lot of really good uh, dialogue about it. So they provide, uh, you know, legal perspectives about it and talk about how things are going in court, how policy is being formed. And then I discuss it more from a cultural perspective. And I think it just allows people to keep up on, uh, the progress that's being made really a lot of progress that's being made for animals um you know the plant-based food movement uh, environmentalism um just to keep everybody informed so as a animal advocate lawyer what do they do on a day-to-day basis like what, what's their actual job yeah animal justice has at their feet in a lot of places like currently um we're suing the ontario government over egg egg legislation animal justice um as well as me as a journalist as well as an activist we're taking the ontario government to court um over their new what's called egg egg laws that are preventing activists from interacting with animals on transport trucks uh, from being able to enter slaughterhouses and farms under what they're calling false pretenses meaning undercover investigators so a lot of things that have you know Uh, furthered the animal rights movement and been able to really show the public things that have been going on behind closed doors for so long, um, the Ontario government's now made it all very illegal with very uh, large fines. And so something animal justice does, um, along with me, is sue. (laughs) So what what would be your, what would make you successful? Like, what, what do you think when you're you're going against the the Ontario government because basically from what I gather I know exactly what you're talking about so from what I gather they're just trying to avoid how the animals are treated to be shown yes they're trying to find excuses for the general public to see what's really going on there yeah like it it all came about because activists started entering farms because the save movement that focuses on transport trucks they um you know were gaining more and more um members and their footage was spreading further joaquin phoenix joined after um the oscars and that created a lot of buzz and so yeah the, the industry was being exposed more and more all the time and that's bad for business um the industry itself and the ontario government will say that it's for like biosecurity reasons yeah. uh, and to keep the animals safe they actually call of it like course. an animal protection zone which is very <laughs> ironic Uh, But yeah, it's really just to be able to keep this industry hidden as it was for so long and to stop those of us who've been trying to expose it. So for my part in the lawsuit, it's that it's an infringement on my uh, freedom of expression and freedom of expression includes freedom of the press. And so I wrote a column for the Toronto Star that said, like, this is my 24th column for the Star and a big majority of the columns I've written in the past have been thanks to activists that have, you know, informed me or informed the public of things that they've seen and experienced and that none of these columns would have been able to be written had it been, had it not been for those people on the ground. And so now my job is, is hindered because of this law. So if I get you properly, you want, so, so what would you feel comfortable with having um, badges issues issued to people so they can visit it with a camera and actually show how what's the main purpose of the lawsuit 
Um, yeah, to, to have the law turned over, to stop making it such a massive fine for people to go in undercover. Because, I mean, if you think about it, for example, also in Alberta, so they were the first province that enacted these, these egg egg laws. And theirs is even more far-reaching. They say that you can't enter any kind of public business um, under what they say false pretenses. So you can't have anybody even if it's say like a long-term care home or a childcare center or a warehouse or a, a slaughterhouse or a meatpacking facility, nobody can go undercover anymore into any of these places without it being a massive fine and, and potentially jail time. Um, so this is, this is like a fundamental action of journalism for a very long time, right? Undercover work. And in particular regarding animals, it's the only way the public ever knows right? These things are not open to the public. So how else are consumers supposed to know? All we're shown by the industry is commercials and advertising, which are bullshit. So activists go in and they expose the truth. And to me, that doesn't seem illegal, shouldn't be illegal. Well, it's interesting that it doesn't stop at the animals right either, that as you said, it's even in the health system. Just in Alberta, seen... of course, just Alberta. Okay, okay. Yeah. But it, it's kind of interesting that it's it's almost like the government's hiding what they're doing because we as we all know well it, hopefully we all know that a lot like the egg industry the milk industry the meat industry as a whole is extremely 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 financed by the government yeah here in canada for they have a lot a lot of money poured into that so that right. it's easily accessible for, yeah it's it's interesting that there's so many there's so much money that's being poured in from the government but yet when it comes to vegan food food that does not contain any animal byproducts there's nothing and we won't lie like i've been i haven't ate meat in almost 12 years now and i remember 12 years ago it was not easy to get even a vegetarian meal, vegan did not, you did not get a vegan meal. It was vegetarian. Right. Yes. And yeah. it was complicated nowadays. Are you kidding me? So easy. It's everywhere. It's so everywhere easy. you can yeah. get food. And yeah. I don't understand why the government doesn't subsidize that, that portion because vegan food is not cheap. Let's not, we won't lie to each other. It's depends, not. It depends how you do it. Yeah. Beyond burgers are cheap but i mean like a can of kidney beans is pretty cheap <laughs> yeah but i don't think you should eat vegan you should eat uh, beyond meat that often either no, i try not to i cut back because it's hard i love it so much it, it, let's just say that nowadays you can easily eat a lot of junk food as well, a vegan. it's so easy now but <laughs> I, I agree with you on the subsidizing so another group i work with a lot you probably know of called nation rising so they're uh, an activist group uh, a lobby group in canada that's specifically focused on um you know lobbying the government to reroute funds being sent to animal agriculture instead to uh plant-based food production and so i worked with them uh doing some writing and there was a lot of things that were happening a couple years ago where the governments you know provincial governments uh and federal government were funding different plant-based protein production things here in manitoba we have this big protein plant protein production alberta and sort of slyly a lot of these fundings are ending or they're being clawed back that the public doesn't really know about and uh, that's really scary especially at a time like this when you know food security and climate change are so 
on top of mind. And yet we're still putting billions of dollars into animal agriculture. And oh, here's a million dollars. Here's one million dollars for peas. Are you kidding? <laughs> like, it's the same principle as um, gas, the way it's still used right now. Like a car that runs on water was invented about 50 years ago. <laughs> and it's a guy, it's an engineer that did it at home. It was not something that you needed to be created in a massive factory. The guy did it at home. But to this day, we don't see it because there's too many, there's too much money to be made with gasoline. And it's the same thing. Like when you, you know, I've always been careful about my diet. So me reading ingredients on the back of something that I buy, I've been doing for more than 10 years, right? And to this day, I, I look at some products and there is milk in it. And I'm like, oh, I know. why the hell I is know. there milk in this product? It makes no sense. To like, me. like Breton crackers. No like, come on, Breton crackers. Yeah. Shit yeah. together. Like, why? It's not even like a cheese cracker. It's like, it's no. a, it's a wheat and veggie yeah. cracker. Like, get the milk powder out of there. But why is it in there? You got to ask. Because it's highly subsidized and it's so exactly. cheap. And it adds, it adds some nutrition. They can put some, you know, of course, because the milk is fortified, yeah. you could just add the calcium and the vitamins without the milk. Yeah. It's, it's, but that's exactly it. It's just because that it's so heavily subsidized that, because let's not lie to each other. Companies, big corporations don't give a damn about the products that, the ingredients in their products. They don't. At the end of the day, it's an Excel spreadsheet and there is a bottom line that says, this is how much profit we made. To them, if if the government, let's say, would subsidize oat milk as much as they do regular milk, mm-hmm. or even a bit more, I guarantee you that they would make that switch because they would save money at the yeah. end of the day. Yes. And that's because they I'm- don't care. They really don't care. But to get that switch over, that cultural switch over, um, it, it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be really hard. Well, the way to do it and you know, there's um, one of my buddies from Israel, and he was explaining to me something one day, how, you know, they, the what the, the Jewish community often do is that they all go together. So let's say they have 100 businesses in a certain city, they will organize all together. And every they, they will see, okay, so there's 50 of us that needs this type of product, this type of product, mm-hmm. this type of product, mm-hmm. and they will all buy together they won't buy individually so that they can put pressure on the people they buy from to get it cheaper and it's, it's just that's, called that's purchasing kind of like vegans that's kind of like vegans i mean but that's my point it's called yeah. purchasing power the principle mm-hmm. is super simple yeah just vote with your money yeah i will pay more for a product that's vegan yeah than a product that is not no matter yeah. what i do that for any single product if there's a product to me that uses less plastic that seems to be better the way they treat the way they build it i will just buy the more expensive one yeah that's what we need to do as vegan let's say is boycott companies that don't produce like the crackers you're talking about they only have there's no reasons for them to have that milk in there so stop buying it and make it vocal to say we're not buying it for one single reason it's because there's milk in it i'll tweet them i'm gonna tweet them (laughs) but but it's that simple just yeah. purchasing power it's really just where yeah where i mean i money? saw i saw craft dinner in australia they have a vegan gluten-free craft dinner now in australia motherfucker 
Yeah. I'm sorry. Fuck, really? Yeah, I saw the video, a friend or somebody I follow on Instagram, and they were going into a store and they're like, you know, with the camera and there it was. And I said exactly what you just said. And then I realized it was from Australia. And then I said the same thing again, but like more mad. Because technically it's not even cheese. I know. It's like, it's like no cheese you're, so you're so close to just being vegan anyways. Can you just yeah. make it plastic? I'll eat it if it's plastic. Make it the plastic yellow cheese and I'll eat that with just take that little bit of freaking dairy out of there. Uh, you know, I think there's um, there's a, a stigma with non-vegans and vegan food because often I've noticed that a lot of products that I buy are vegan just because I read the ingredients. Yeah, not because it's advertised. There's yes. nothing written on it. There's there's whole Instagram accounts called accidentally vegan or hashtags you can follow. That is all products. <laughs> I like it. It's like, you know, Oreo cookies or like a lot of Pillsbury products. And really what it comes down to is that they're just cheap. They didn't want to use real butter or real cream. They wanted to use vegetable oil. And so they're just cheap. And then we're like, thank you. <laughs> But it's funny because I think there's a stigma to it too. I wouldn't be surprised if vegan products are not as popular as they could be because they're so overly publicized to yeah, be vegan. I think that's why a lot of things are using plant-based now because they, they find market research yeah. has shown that plant-based as a term um, is more inclusive or, or makes people feel like it's more inclusive. So if you could call something vegan, but also there's some bullshit too with calling things vegan that aren't cruelty-free. You know, like, like there's a lot of beauty products and makeup products out there that now that call themselves vegan yeah. because they don't contain any animal products, but they're still tested on animals. And I've tweeted like Clairol and these companies and being like, you can't call your hair dye vegan if it's tested on animals. You can call it plant-based, but like, that's not what vegan means. Be vegan also means cruelty-free. People don't get that. You can put whatever you want on those labels. It's just yeah, a market. It's just no a marketing term. There's no law about it. Same with humane meat. I'm working on a piece right now for Vox about humane washing in the U.S., about the amount of certified humane or the like labels that are on meat products in the U.S. and how they actually are just created by the industry and mean absolutely nothing. Oh, it's it's a marketing term. Yeah. Uh, it's not legally was, defined. It's not even scientifically yeah, no. defined. What was the, the documentary? I think it's Seaspiracy or Sea Conspiracy, yeah. something yeah. like that, that yeah. they talk about. I can't remember the name of the of the company but they put their seal on everything and they don't even know they don't even care just pay a membership and we'll believe you we won't even yeah, there's it. no there's no auditing and if it is auditing it's auditing by the industry itself yeah, yeah exactly i will say myself about my company that yes. we do right yes just take my word on it trust me yeah yeah or like slaughterhouses in canada that have to self-report their mistakes oh that makes sense oh i made no mistakes yeah that makes <laughs> sense oh we believe you good job yeah. buddy Good job. Good Industry job. is working. <laughs> the uh, how how did you get involved in this? Because by what you were speaking earlier, it's been about five years. Yeah, yeah, I was vegan. So how did I you? Was, um, I was what writing. was the ting ting moment? It all came together at the same time. I was living overseas, um, writing more cultural stuff, writing about food, a lot about food. And as I was writing more about food, I started writing for Vice and doing more about food ethics, um, okay. like writing about you know organic food and humane meat and all that kind of stuff. And as I was researching that, trying to make it make sense for me. And I remember at, at one point going to such lengths to buy meat 
from happy animals, like driving far distances out to farms and like stocking my freezer with things that felt ethical to me and just going like to make so much effort. And at the end of the day, realizing like, none of this is really a thing. Like this is, a, none of it is really any better. They all go to the same place in the end. I can't find a way even while I'm living and eating or writing to make any of this actually make sense. And then uh, I had my daughter uh, almost five years ago and it was upon having to feed her food. As soon as she was, you know, six months old, ready to eat solid food. I really, uh, I was already writing about animal issues, but more like circuses and whales for you know making my way towards the farmed animals but sort of trying to avoid it and it couldn't be avoided anymore and once I had to feed her food I thought I cannot put a dead animal in front of her she she's trusting me and she doesn't know and it's up to me and that was when I really had to get my own values in check and that was the moment and I did a, a veganuary um nice. five years ago four, four and a half years ago and uh, yeah, and then it all came together. And then that's what I started writing about exclusively, started writing more from an animal rights perspective. And at that time, the world was changing too. So it, the timing just worked out so well with, you know, veganism kind of starting to take, take off and uh, my perspective suddenly being welcomed in publications that no one probably would have ever expected that the Global Mail would, you know, let an animal rights perspective ever be published. Yeah, that's interesting because the Global Mail is let's say it's more center than left than right. It's basically somewhere in the middle. Oh, that's yeah, interesting. It's, it's, I think it's becoming a little bit more liberal or at least, you know, the stuff I do there, they let me do quite a few things. I'm often sort of surprised about it. The Toronto Star is even better. They let me pretty much say whatever I want. It's amazing. I mean, but I, I do know, I do know what I'm doing. Like my motto is always clever, not crazy. You yeah. know, like everyone always expects you know, me as a vegan or an animal rights activist or even those things as a journalist to sound crazy, you know, use, you know, emotional language and, you know, be like an activist on paper. And I'm not because the facts speak for themselves. I don't have to be crazy. I don't have to use emotional language. I can literally just highlight what's actually happening that people just don't know is happening. And that will be horrible enough. Just let it speak for itself. And that's what I do. Well, that's a beautiful thing because that I, I, I'm someone that's been interested by uh, politics for a very long time. And I, I, I find nowadays in journalism, especially that there's not a lot of facts anymore. It's mostly opinion based. Like you can read pretty much anything and you can always feel the opinion of the writer instead of, as you said, simply presenting facts and letting the reader get to their own conclusions. Yeah. Because if you're on a subject where the facts speak for themselves, you don't need to say anything about your opinion. Simply presented. And if you have somebody that's paying attention, they will realize for themselves. Because it is true. And, and I'll be honest, I'm one of those two where I don't want to say that I'm careful about calling myself a vegan, but there is a stigma every single time that somebody, because I'm not outspoken to the people that I don't know. I'm, unless you come eat with me, you'll never know that I'm vegan because I don't really approach that subject with people. Um, but I find that there's a lot of crazies. I don't know how else to say it. I don't mean to be rude by saying that. But well, I mean, I feel like that's in, that's in every social, you know, yeah. grouping of people. But I think 
I think it's expected more of us. And so yeah. they're easy to point out. Mm-hmm. And I mean, ironically enough, in my work, I am an opinion writer. I'm not a reporter. They won't let me be a reporter because my bias is so out there now. Like, yeah. I, you know, I sometimes I'll do some lifestyle work, um, but they wouldn't they wouldn't actually let me report because I'm an activist and they know that. So I can only do opinion work unless I'm writing for an advocacy publication like sentient media where it's obvious you know but i think uh as far as journalism and bias we're all human right like we're not robots putting it out there and uh, you know if anything in the last four years of craziness in the u.s we've all come to really learn which publications are on what side you know like now we're describing publications as center or left or right oh, yeah, absolutely yeah, and it's that's become more of a topic of conversation. Whereas, like originally, there you know journalism that there was none of that. It was just center, you know, like there was no political leaning of, of of journalism. That was kind of an oxymoron, and now uh, now it's everywhere. I find it a shame. I think it's a shame. It's really, really a shame that every single news outlet, no matter that it's written online or uh, video, they you all know what to expect. You all know that if you watch them, they'll talk about that. If you watch the yes. other one, they'll talk. Yes. There is no, and nobody debates. We were talking about that before the podcast. There's, um, I don't have a problem with that when you think about it. I don't have a, an issue with people taking part of their political views. I have no problem with that. What I have a problem with is the lack of debate. Mm-hmm. I have a problem that the left doesn't talk to the right and the center. I'm a centrist. I'm not left. I'm not right. I like some stuff on the left. I like some stuff on the right. And I tend to make my own opinion, but I never see debates anymore. Not proper debates where there's no name callings, just intelligent people that are knowledgeable about whatever subject that they're talking about sitting across from each other and just speaking to each other. Yeah, it's kind of an old school um you know a debate style show you don't yeah you don't really see a lot more of that anymore i think i think it's such a a high stress time you know like everyone's walking on eggshells with everyone all the time that like that sort of format is so tricky now i mean in the toronto star they do have a debate section still it's on tuesdays it's called the big debate i've been in it a few times talking about like you know should plant-based meat be able to be called meat and should toronto give up for like kind of sort of surface level stuff that the obvious yes and no arguments are going to be there. But it's, it's interesting to have, you know, one a yes column and a no column put beside each other. But I mean, it's still not like, you know, getting face to face with someone. I, I, I prefer to do that. I and I still do some of that, like on, but it's mostly radio shows. I feel like old school radio shows are more into that. Especially AM, especially yeah. AM radio. I'm a big fan of AM radio for that reason. Exactly. It's, and, but I think the, Maybe that's what I should do, actually. That's a AM good radio. idea. Maybe I should, because I know that uh, Instagram Live allows you to be four in a room. Maybe we should do that. Maybe I should have you, I should just be a mediator. Sure. Have somebody on the complete opposite side and just have a... Debate in- show. Intelligent respect, because I'm very, I'm very strong on respect. Don't call, I don't care what you believe in, I'll never call your names. The only name I ever called anybody on a show, I was recently on an, on a, I think it was an Alberta based um, podcast and a popular one. And the guy had me on with a keto cookbook author. Okay. 
And I think it's like a New York Times best-selling keto cookbook author. And so he had came with this big name and, you know, he's spouting off about why, you know, humans need meat and everything. And, you know, it was my turn to talk. And I said, well, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm not a nutrition expert, but I work with a lot of nutrition experts and I'm probably going to listen to them over a keto cookbook author. <laughs> you know? So it's not really calling a name. It's just calling it is what it is. You're, you're a cookbook author. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting because... Keto is very strong on meat, obviously, because it's high protein, high fat, but very low carbs, which on a vegan diet is basically impossible. Yeah. yeah you do yeah. a low carbs because you're looking at one gram of protein for every three gram of carbs, basically. Yes. But, it's very, yet, very hard. but yet I've tried, I tried them all over the years. I've tried every single diet that's out there and keto doesn't work for me at least i know people that it does but it doesn't for me yeah i think there's a lot of like weight loss and stuff that happens but like to what extent and at what at what peril you know like you hear a lot of more of like the long-term effects are kind of scary well it's not sustainable that that's too. The thing. lose weight and then and then what oh and then as soon as you start eating carbs again you're gonna gain it all back mm-hmm. and how's it's, your what's up and how's your kidneys <laughs> after that long well, of eating? It, it, it's still interesting because the keto diet is based on producing ketones in your body, which means that you want to burn, you want to force your body to burn fat instead of burning carbs like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a lot of studies that shows that if you want to produce more ketone than the keto diet, do intermittent fasting. Mm-hmm, and I've been doing 16, eight for four years now. Wow, good I eat you. about eight hours a day. I'll, I'll scram three, 4,000 calories in two meals, but uh, <laughs> I'm a pig. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My plates are ridiculous, but lucky you. I mean, I, I probably could do that, but I shouldn't. <laughs> well, if the, the thing is, is you are allowing your body a big rest, right? For mm-hmm. 16 hours, your body is not digesting anything because all I eat what's is... Your, what's your time? How? Where's your 16 hours? Uh, normally, I finish eating around 8 o'clock at night. So 12 to 8. I eat between noon and 8. Oh, and so then you wake up and you don't eat again until noon. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And normally, what I've come to realize too is working out around 12 so by the time my body's completely depleted of carbs i work out so that i burn the fat that's there oh it's so hungry like i I eat a big breakfast and then i work out and then i come eat another breakfast (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i'm always starving but it's a mental thing well that's why you're you're fit and i'm not (laughs) well I, i think it's one of my buddies does um three days fast about once a month once a month one every every two months he'll go on a three-day fast all he drinks is uh zan uh, what is it herbal tea wow that's wow. it herbal tea and water for three days holy moly have you ever tried that yeah yeah i've done i think 48 hours but it's not if your goal is to keep your muscle mass and to be able to work out because i guarantee you during those three days he's not working out no, you couldn't. You'd pass he's out. He's depleted. He's completely, completely depleted. It's a mental exercise at that mm. point. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's um, it would be for a good debate, though. 
going back to what I was saying, it's yeah, uh, that I that I couldn't do because I don't know anything about it. But I'd love to listen. I'd love to learn more. I hear a lot of people talking about it. I just uh, never tried it. I think there's um, that's a good point. Maybe we should, maybe I should do that more because I know a lot of fitness experts, and I know a lot about it myself. But I'm not. That's not what I do for a job. I'm just. It's what I put in my body. So I guess it makes sense for me to understand what I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe that's a good idea because I think that's another big problem with the vegan diet. A lot of people are under the impression that it's not enough to Yeah, that is, a, that is a stigma that people are always hungry and that you're never full. And I'm like, I eat more now than I ever did. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very interesting the way the, I don't know how you change that stigma. You just, it's sure just education and i think it's just more people you know going to a vegan restaurant and trying a vegan meal like between montreal and toronto like there's so many incredible vegan restaurants we're, we're doing okay here in winnipeg but like like love in montreal like holy shit yeah. is that a good restaurant Crazy. atlanta and in, in toronto like doomies like there's just there's such good food that if you brought someone who'd never tried vegan food before and just sat them down and gave them food like you're gonna they're not gonna leave hungry never mm. I got uh, one of my buddies since he, he's not vegan and just him see, watching me eat. He now buys Satan every single time, every week. He always has Satan in it. So he's replaced half of his meat consumption just because I was eating it. And he's like, what's yes, that? Yes, and I yes. gave him some and he's like, holy shit, this is just introducing stuff. people. Yeah. Like none of my closest friends are vegan, but they've all definitely in the last couple of years incorporated much more vegan food mm-hmm. into their diet. They're, you know, no one's drinking cow milk anymore. Mm-hmm. People are ordering, you know, the beyond burger from A&W instead of a regular burger, like just these little things. And even if they're not going to go full vegan, I think every, every bit of it counts for their health and for the health of obviously the animals aren't being killed and for the planet. And I, and I see a progression with it. And I think if it just becomes more normalized and more available, it's just, it's everywhere. Why wouldn't you get the vegan Whopper? <laughs> you know, why not? I think that's, um, th- this is one of the, I don't want to say one of the issues, but one of, I think one of the drawbacks of a lot of activists is the way they approach the subject. Like I've, I've in Montreal last year or the year before there was, a bunch of people that went in uh, a restaurant and starting screaming at people for eating meat. Yeah, and, yeah, and you see kids in the corner crying because they don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the right way to go about it. I think showing that it's available everywhere, that you can still, like if I go to the gym and you compare me to another guy that weighs 200 pounds, I'm in better, I'm in, as good a shape of him, but I guarantee you my body's hurting less because I don't have inflammation. Oh yeah, you're recovering for sure. I oh, mean, yeah, I, I don't know like what, this is like probably the hottest topic of debate in veganism and animal activism is what strategies work, which ones don't, which are actually making things worse, yeah. which yeah. are, you know, not, not enough. Cause a lot of those people, those abolitionists who think that it needs to be severe all the time, you know, they, they live in a state of panic. Like they, they are thinking about the animals that are being tortured as we speak all the time. Mm -hmm. So I can come, I can commiserate with them on that, on that level. And I've written about this before. I've changed my own perspective. A number of times I've had grassroots activists, you know, you know, yell at people outside restaurants, convince me that there's some good to it. And I, I honestly don't know. And that's, 
if ever I'm asked and I'm asked a lot what works and what doesn't or what I what my opinion is I honestly don't know and what I really hope is that there's going to be far more academic study I want actual qualitative quantitative study about what things actually work and what on a social psychological social psychological level what are things that are actually convincing people to think new is being yelled at at a steakhouse working for people i don't know and i i want i want researchers to tell me what's actually working and i, I hope that these things become of interest to academia because personally, if you scream at me about something, chances are I am not going to listen to what you have to say until you calm down. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. And that's me. And I'm, I'm quite a patient person. For the average person, you're screaming at them. I'm not sure that's the best way to go in order to sell your idea, right? I think that those pressure campaigns work better at a corporate level. Like if you think about like what's been done in the fur industry, like with Canada goose mm-hmm. and I think Rudsack now, finally, did they finally fold? And, and all of these, they, they, I'm not sure if they did or not, but like these pressure campaigns where they're outside the stores, maybe the people are being, uh, you know, annoyed, but I, we've seen them work. We've seen those pressure campaigns where they're affecting business and that, you know, they're, they're stopping people from going inside the store by talking to them. You know, when they're, when they're putting on those megaphones, the sounds of a coyote being skinned and they're mm-hmm. blasting it through the mall, people are going to think twice about walking into that store. And I, you know, I think that that, that sometimes that can work. We've seen it work, but that's more at a corporate level. If you're, you know, maybe the steakhouse isn't the right place, but maybe fashion it is. Well, I think that personally, I believe that it would be easier to simply give people the choice because look at a winter coat. I will, I would have never bought uh, Canada goose. They're overpriced. They're not even nice looking in my opinion. Forget the fact that they have fur and they're down inside. But I have a North Face that's way better than a Canada Goose. And I chose the model that does not have down in it. That's synthetic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's there already. I think the products are already there. Yeah, but the problem is is there's not enough people choosing them because we have to make fur and down not cool. And there's still too many people that think it's cool. Like I have a Wuxley coat. I fucking love that brand, Wuxley. Like, they are amazing. Yeah. The products they make are incredible. The people who own it are incredible. I love like a fully vegan company, but that's a very specialized product mm. that a lot of people probably aren't even aware of, you know? I don't so, know them. Yeah, so they're a Toronto-based company and they are totally, totally vegan outerwear. They're probably the top vegan outerwear company in Canada. And that's the thing. It's a very specialized thing. We just need to make it more of a culturally broad normalized thing we have to make walking around wearing a coyote trimmed hood whack for lack of a better term we have to make it uncool we have to make it actually taboo we have to make it you feel shamed and and stupid for doing it you think that the taboo portion because psychologically wise the more taboo you have in a society the more people will actually do those taboos. It's human nature to want to do what's not allowed. I don't know if it, that works for fashion. I guess it. I guess it does work for fashion in that way. But you know, like I think about you know wearing ostrich, for example. Yeah. Uh, aside from the price, I think a lot of people would feel very, very strange about doing that. But as you're saying it does turn it into a more sort of exclusive higher end thing. But you know what? 
we can work with that. Let fur become a more exclusive higher end thing that only the very rich people can afford. We need the 99% of the rest of the people to not wear it. You know what I mean? If 1% are wearing the ostrich and the fur, we can work with that for now. But make fur uncool for the masses. I think, uh, I don't know for you, but one of the problems that I have, like I buy, I, I wear a dress, like I, I wear a suit when I work and finding good looking dress shoes is extremely hard. Yes, yes. That is very hard. And that are comfortable too. I know a few yeah. guys who um, they're always looking for secondhand and they'll still wear leather, but secondhand leather just because of how it feels on the foot. Um, I don't have a problem with secondhand leather as much. I think I have a pair of secondhand leather shoes myself. And I know that that's a tough thing because a lot of these synthetic leather shoes can be really uncomfortable. And they don't last. The quality of them is normally yeah. not that great either because I haven't bought shoes in years. But I have, unfortunately, a few pairs of leather shoes that I've had forever that I wear. But I think I think that's okay. I mean, to get like people always talk about when they go vegan and what do I do with all my leather stuff? Mm -hmm. like, I, I sold some you know designer leather things I had because the money was good. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I've kept a few leather things, and I think to get rid of leather makes no sense. And especially if you're you know vegan in part for the animal or for the planet, yeah. you know I think wearing secondhand is more important than wearing anything vegan. Uh, you know, using what you have, not purchasing anything new, period. And then mm -hmm. if you are purchasing, like I haven't bought anything new really in two years, at least yeah. thrift stores all the way, if I can, unless there's a vegan company that I want to support. Yeah. But that makes sense. Again, like I was saying earlier, that's your purchasing power. Put, put yep. your money where you want to encourage people and it, that, that's yep. worth it. Talk with your money. Yeah, there was a, a an outerwear company here in Winnipeg. I just wrote about them for the Global Mail about a story about fur going out of fashion. And um, it's a, a family-owned four-generation outerwear company that used to use a lot of fur and leather and down in all of their outerwear. And the new president, um, the first female in the line of presidents of the company, she has now changed it all to vegan. Or, or at least to animal free. And so they made this incredible line of luxurious faux fur coats that are so heavy and so warm and so obviously faux you know they're not looking like real fur and i bought myself one for christmas because i was like i want to support your company and i want to be warm because i'm in winnipeg and you know like you say that's that's a purchasing power thing you know it helped them and it helped me why go for um for the fur because that's one thing i don't i've never been attracted to fur on my coats for some reason or another yeah you know sure. what I, I haven't ever either. This is the, usually I just don't have any of it, but uh, I just moved back to Winnipeg. I'd been gone for a long time and I just moved back and I was like, Oh God, like this is colder than I remember. And now, uh, yeah, this look, and I just, I kind of wanted to see for myself, could a faux fur coat actually live up? And uh, it does. Yeah. The company's called Freed. F-E-F-R-E-E-D. If you look it up, they make incredible faux fur, everything, faux fleece. It's lovely warm if you're in a place like Winnipeg. I live north and I live uh, in Quebec, so I'm used to the minus 35, so I know what it go. is. Yes. It's part of the deal to live in Canada. That's right. That's right. The um, That's interesting because I haven't looked at faux fur in a very long time, because to me, they always look, and I apologize, I don't mean to be rude, but they look tacky. Like, I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't understand the, the principle of trying to copy something that you don't want to buy in the first place. 
I'll I've show you. Understood that. You'll see how cozy it looks. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, yeah, you know what? You're you're probably right because I don't know them. But Freed, I'll check them out. Mm-hmm. It's probably a good idea. I don't because I like to buy clothes. So <laughs> <laughs> it might not be a good idea. But the um, we're going at uh, what 40, 45, Yeah, about forty five minutes. Uh, I think we'll have to call it. Uh, I think I'm going to have to call it because I need to ask you a question before you okay. go. Okay. Uh, I always ask the same question, no matter the podcast I'm doing. Um, if you had a chance to speak to your 14 year old self, Gosh. what would you tell her? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Why do you think I ask it at the end? I'm like 14. <laughs> that's, that's like, don't do it, girl. Don't do it. <laughs> Uh, what would I tell her? Um, I would tell her you don't know everything. Chill the fuck out and listen to your mom. Because your mother now, right? <laughs> yes, to a girl, and I am scared. Listen to your mom. So you're saying that to your daughter right now at the same time, right? Like a thousand times a day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's funny. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add because I think you had a blog. You have a blog, right? Well, um, um, follow me on Twitter. That's probably the best place. That's where I post all my work. Um, I do blog for a publication called Planet Friendly News on a very regular basis, where I share some of my recipes. I'm working on something now about food inequities across racial lines. So we do a lot of kind of hardcore stuff and some casual stuff. So that's Planet Friendly News. That's my every other week blog. Uh, and uh, Twitter is uh, Jess L. Reed, R-E-I-D. And there, uh, any of my publications for The Globe and The Star and everything else I do will all be there. Awesome. It's... Uh... I'm happy. I don't know how I found you on Instagram, but I don't know. I think I might have probably like said something rude on a post or something. That's usually how these things work. A debate with somebody on a post. <laughs> I I honestly I've never I don't it wouldn't have been on one of mine because nobody's ever rude. I don't know. It's, I might have been rude to somebody who's being rude to you. Uh, people are not. It's surprising on that uh I have very different accounts and on that account I've I haven't had any vulgar people compared to some of the ones where i talk about politics (laughs) well then i guess you found me in a very nice peaceful way we just don't remember (laughs) well you were i don't know i I have no idea but i'm very happy i didn't know what to expect from uh animal journalists but (laughs) i I didn't wear the pause (laughs) it's been uh, it's been a great conversation i'm very happy that you took the time to speak with me i really really appreciate it well, I thank you very, very much for having me anytime. And if you want to do the debates, I'm here. Oh, I, as you were talking earlier, I wrote it down because that's a great idea. I never thought about that before. That makes sense. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you.